Dre's on vacation, everybody. Yes, Dre's Operation Holiday. <laughs> Dre's on vacation. Andre Harrison, what have you done? <laughs> of all the weeks for you to go on vacation, man. Well, what what are you thinking, man? Welcome to the Motorsport 101 podcast. Hello, good day to you, and welcome to the Motorsport 101, episode 82. We are on youtube.com slash motorsport101, motorsport101, excuse me, youtube.com slash motorsport101. Dre's not even been absent for like five minutes, and we're already burning the building down. (laughs) Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Don't, nothing to worry about. Uh, we are also at facebook.com slash motorsport 101. We are on twitter.com at motorsport underscore 101 because we still can't get that uniformity. Um, you can, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. And thank you so much for listening. If you to subscribe to us, you can get more episodes of Motorsport 101 and Bike Live, which are all part of the Motorsport 101 network. And if you really, really like us, you can offer to voluntarily support us financially at patreon.com slash motorsport101, where you can get all sorts of cool perks, including early access to episodes of Motorsport 101 and Bike Live. I am RJ O'Connell. He is Ryan King. And now it's time to address the elephant in the room that Andre Harrison is on vacation. Yes, it's taken so many episodes, but we finally got it done. America has conquered the podcast. (laughs) America has conquered the podcast. Oh my goodness. Today is such a blessed day. We are, we are going to dump some tea into the Harbor to celebrate. Um, actually Dre's got a pretty good reason to be on vacation because good things are happening in his professional life where he is now a manager at a certain sports betting organization that starts with Billiam Bill. Yes, good yeah. good days ahead for Dre, and also good days ahead for his motorsports fandom. Right, indeed. Um, he certainly picked a heck of a time to go on vacation, which was, of course, entirely well-deserved and all that, but, um, yeah, his boy won the Bahrain Grand Prix, and we'll get into that in a second. This week's keeping it 101. Uh, King, we know that it's the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yes, yes, I know it's the Stanley Cup playoffs. I, I, I've learned in painful ways that it's the Stanley Cup playoffs. Um, how are your beloved New York Rangers doing um, this year? We're, we're, we're down. We're, we're down one game to two to the Montreal Canadiens. 
Right. Remember, we are recording this on a fine Monday afternoon, April 17th, 2017. Right now, the Rangers and Canadian series is tied. Is a, No, it's not tied. It's 2-1 Montreal after three games with the fourth coming up shortly. I'm a big supporter of the Nashville Predators of the Western Conference, and I would just like to take this time to remind you that as of April 17th, 2017, <laughs> with Game 3 coming later tonight... Uh, the Nashville Predators have an aggregate score of six to nothing on the Chicago Blackhawks after two games on the road. And did I mention that the Chicago Blackhawks have won three Stanley Cups in the last decade with this same core group of players that they have now? Yes, the the, the we... meltdown, the the meltdown on the north side has begun. <laughs> Oh my goodness! It was so delicious. I thought I was I was on the edge of my on my everything. Uh, just watching them sit through game one and just take the throttle right off for the second and third periods of game one. But game two, who buddy, that was a whole different story because they were whooping that ass. Yes, yes. How, 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 like how well have your, have your Preds been doing against the Black Oaks? Well, it's kind of interesting because, um, the season series, I don't remember it going all that well. We did win the first game of the season against Chicago, um, but then things kind of went Chicago's well. But the thing is that Nashville as a team have always been built well to match up against their top foes in the in the Central Division of the Western Conference. Um, Nashville happens to match up well against Chicago, and in a lot of these games that they've lost, you kind of get the sense that okay, they did lose these games, but if one or two things had gone uh, a different way, then maybe Nashville could have won them. So it's not actually all that much of a surprise to see Nashville doing well against this team. And, you know, Chicago should have expected this challenge. They should have expected a lot more out of Nashville. And now they're starting to see, hey, maybe we should, maybe we should try more. Yes, yeah, you you definitely tell when it's playoff hockey. The players definitely put more of an effort in. I I wouldn't say more of an effort, but you can see that they're that they're giving it the extra five percent over the a hundred percent. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's uh, it's going good so far, and I know that everybody has gone out in the woodworks and around us. Hey, the Nas- last time Nashville won two games to open the playoff series, they went around and lost the Nets three in a row. Yeah, but that was Anaheim. That's a much different team, and it's a much different club. We didn't have P.K. Subban last year. We do now. We didn't have two legitimate number one goalies in Pecorino and Yusei Saros. We do now. We didn't have 30-goal scorer Victor Arvidsson. We do now, and it's it's good times all around. So be sure to listen back into the podcast when this inevitably blows up in our faces and we lose in six or seven games. Yes, story's been different here in New York for the for my beloved Broadway Blue Shirts against uh, the Montreal Canadiens. It's it it seemed like things were going to go well, well, better than last season, in the sense of we actually won our opening game against Montreal. Unlike uh, the Predators and Blackhawks, we played our third game already. We've lost two of the three games after winning the opening game. <laughs> Oh, buddy. Oh, and that's game two was a tough loss because uh, 
the Rangers were actually ahead one goal with 17 seconds to go in the game, and we ended up losing that game in overtime. Ooh, buddy. Mm. And... I think I remember seeing that, in fact. And there was... One of the things about the Rangers, the Rangers are a fairly defensive unit. That it's pretty much based around, uh, you know, goaltender Heinrich Lundqvist and our defensive lines. Like, even our defensive lines are pretty well capable of scoring themselves. And defense is pretty much eroded away. I'm pretty sure I remember in game two where, like, Lundqvist got his stick broken and played for, like, a good three minutes without a stick until Montreal scored a goal. <laughs> oh, buddy. Mm, yeah, I remember seeing some of the highlights of Game 3, in particular uh, Canadians forward Alexander Radulov, um, who has a very great relationship uh, with the Nashville Predators and vice versa. Um, certainly did not leave the team on very acrimonious terms twice in his time in Nashville, um, scoring just the most ridiculous highlight reel goal. And I'm just thinking, you know what? Good for you, man. Good for you, buddy. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Why not? <laughs> and it even it's like, it's not even mainly like highlight reel goals you tend to see from the Canadians in the series so far. It's more like just grind them out goals where they, you know, stack the box and just pile everyone in and just try to get, try to find a way around Lundqvist because Defense is pretty much not there. <laughs> no, it is not. Uh, just a quick check on the first round playoff series. Ottawa versus Boston is tied one to one at this point. Um, Sarah was our friend Sarah Connors was really, really stressing over game two uh, against the Senators, like yes. a whole lot. Yes. Um, Washington versus Toronto also tied one to one thanks to some overtime heroics from the Maple Leafs. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins are up three to nothing, and the Minnesota Bl and the St. Louis Blues are up three to nothing on the Minnesota Wild. Um, they are each one game away from a sweep as we are recording this. Uh, Anaheim are up two games to nothing on the Calgary Flames, and the Edmonton Oilers, with leading scorer Connor McDavid, are up two to one on the San Jose Sharks. The Stanley Cup playoffs are very, are a very fun time. They're a very fun time for all. Um, as it was once said, why why snort cocaine when you can watch playoff hockey? <laughs> yes, playoff hockey is intense. Probably like my most memorable, probably like my first experience as really a hockey fan watching playoff hockey was my freshman year at the University of Pittsburgh when... Um, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia had that really intense playoff series. I think it was like the 2011-2012 season. Ooh. Where it was a first-round matchup between the, the the Penguins and the Flyers. I, I'm pretty sure Pittsburgh ended up winning that series. But that was like the series where, for Philadelphia, Claude Giroux there... Their guy ended up really making a name for himself in that series. Man, it feels like it's been so long since Philadelphia has had, like, a contending team. Yeah. <laughs> I guess this could be said about a lot of teams, to be honest. This could be said about teams like Toronto and Edmonton up until this year. I was, <sighs> just, I was just happy that my team even made the playoffs. Yeah, it, it was a yeah. You guys got the first wild card. Our Nashville got the second wild card in the West. 
And uh, yeah, things have uh, things turned out great ever since, <laughs> for, at least for one of us. Yes, at least for one of us. Who knows where this could go? But man, probably like without a doubt, I I don't care about any other sport. The Stanley Cup is probably the best trophy in sports. Oh, it's it's so much fun, and that cup gets to go on so many stupid adventures where <laughs> it should have been broken or just completely unsalvageable, and yet it still holds up. I don't know how they do it. Yeah, probably like for people who don't know hockey at all, Stanley Cup is the NHL championship trophy, and it's big. Yeah, it's, it's huge. Big and it's, it's huge. If you if you're on a Stanley Cup winning team, your name is inscribed on the trophy. So every single player on the roster, including major management and the team owner, gets their name inscribed on the trophy. I have to get. I have to imagine that there's going to be a point where they've just got to start taking uh, rings of the uh, the sta- of some of the older winners of the Stanley Cup off of it. Because oh, they, they, they have, don't. They've done that already. They have done that already. Yeah, I was just about to say because if it gets too big, it's going to be like twenty stories high, and nobody can skate around with it. Yeah, because I think they've changed the design over the years. Like, if you notice, the the higher rings on the trophy are narrower because that's the that's the size the rings used to be and they it was used to be called the stovepipe cup because it was they thought it was just going to go on and on forever and it was going to be like a stovepipe oh my goodness so Wouldn't like over time something yeah over time like yeah we we need to make the rings wider <laughs> that'd be you know more ideal i still can't get over the fact that harry zolnerchek has scored a playoff goal he scored more playoff <laughs> goals than Jonathan Taze and that other guy on Chicago who shall remain nameless, that piece of garbage. And there's some, like, also some weird quirks about the Stanley Cup. Like, you, like RJ, you probably know, the 2004, I mean, the 2004-2005 season didn't happen because of the NHL lockout. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the only time one of the big four pro sports leagues in America has actually lost a season over a labor dispute. Major League Baseball has lost a postseason before, and some other leagues have lost parts of a season and started late. Um, the 04-05 NHL season just didn't happen. It's actually recognized on the Stanley Cup trophy. If you go to the part where the 2004-2005 season, like where that Stanley Cup winning team supposed to be on the cup, it's it just it's a blank slate and it just one inscription: season not played. <laughs> It, it, they should just like reinscribe on it and just said, it just have like the shrug emoji. <laughs> the shrug emoji. The shrug emoji. Oh goodness. Um. Yes. Playoffs are fun. Uh. Sports are sports are good sometimes. Sports are bad sometimes. But sports are also good sometimes. Um, and to anyone who's probably going to comment later, I probably have the Indy 500 Borg Warner trophy on here, but it, like it's so big you can't bring it anywhere. <laughs> oh, goodness. Like, that would probably be my favorite, but it's like, the Stanley Cup, we could bring places. The Borg Warner trophy, you literally can't bring it anywhere. To the fact that the winner doesn't even get to take it like away from the speedway. <laughs> No, they just get a replica of it. Yeah, they get um they get a miniature version of it. It may just have one face on it and it's theirs. Yes. That's wonderful. Okay. Um speaking of the Indianapolis 500, 
Uh, last week we recorded episode 81 on a Tuesday. That would be that would be Tuesday, um, April the 11th. The following day, we got some news that uh, that, that was a pretty big deal, folks. Fernando Alonso is going to run the Indianapolis 500. Oh dear, Lord, baby Jesus, help us all. Nando's coming to the brickyard. <laughs> the Indianapolis 500 has attracted another world champion to its field of drivers, as McLaren announced on Wednesday that Fernando Alonso, two-time Formula One world champion and three times runner-up, will compete in the 101st running of the Indianapolis 500 on May 28th. Oh yes. boy, yes. this is uh this is a this is a big big deal for a lot of reasons. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a game changer for for modern motorsport as a whole. I would say because it's the first time in a long time that an active Formula One World Championship driver has skipped out on the Monaco Grand Prix to to run the Indianapolis 500 during the middle of a Formula One World yeah, Championship it's season. The first time since 19, well, since 1960s. I, M- Nigel Mansell was a full-time IndyCar driver when he made his attempts at the 500. He had left Formula One. He had some one-off Grand Prix in, like, the Grand Prix in the Western Hemisphere. But for the most part, he was not an active Formula One driver. Oh, buddy, no. Um, Alonso's driving for Andretti Autosport, and they are working in partnership with McLaren Honda. The official name of the team is called Andretti Autosport with McLaren Honda. So this is a collaborative effort with McLaren and Honda and Andretti Autosport to give Fernando Alonso an opportunity to run the Indianapolis 500 for the first time. He's also got Michael Andretti himself, the team owner and principal of Andretti Autosport, calling his race from the pit bots. Yes, like, to work out, just to quickly go through the admin, uh, Alonzo will be racing for uh, McLaren at the Indianapolis 500. It's it's McLaren in essentially name and funding only. The team he'll be racing for is run by, run by and completely staffed by Andretti Autosport. And he probably has the... I, I don't want to say he'd be the number one Andretti car, but the way that they're staffing the car, it is the number one Andretti car, where um, Michael Schumacher, I mean, whoa, whoa, wow, that was, yep, place is burning down. <laughs> oh, buddy, yeah. Um, Michael so... Andretti will be calling his race from the pit box, his his. Cars Engineer will be the team's technical, will be Andretti Autosport's technical director, who who also called, who was also um, Scott Dixon's race engineer during the 2008 season, which Scott Dixon himself won the Indianapolis 500. Yeah, this is a, this is a very big deal. And of course, Alonzo joins a pretty already stacked uh, McLaren, uh, excuse me, Andretti Autosport and McLaren lineup. Um, as his teammates, he'll have... Ryan Hunter Ray, Indy 500 winner in 2014. He'll have Takuma Sato, who probably could have won in 2012. He'll have Marco Andretti, who has come close so many times in the last decade. He'll have rookie Jack Harvey in a fifth um, Andretti Autosport car, at Alonzo's being the sixth. And of course, they'll have the defending Indianapolis 500 champion, 
Alexander Rossi back in the number 98 Napa Auto Parts car to go for two in a row. Y'all. Um, yeah. And just and just and, so we're clear, Harvey himself has a lot of experience at the Speedway. His last Indy Lights outing at the Speedway in 2015, he won the Freedom 100. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, in fact, a lot of people are tipping that Andretti Autosport, they seem to have a knack for getting the most out of their rookie performers in recent years. Because if you'll remember, back in 2013, Carlos Munoz nearly won the thing up out from under the feet of Tony Kanaan, uh, if not for a late race caution. 2014, Kurt Busch did very well in his one-off um attempt at the double to do the Indianapolis 500 and the Coca-Cola 600. And of course, we remember last year when Alexander Rossi on a, on a miracle economy run won the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500 and became only the ninth rookie to do so. So there is a good chance that Alonzo could be the 10th rookie to do so and, and win I'll- the Indianapolis 500. And even when it comes to testing and preparation, Andretti seems to be, you know, head and shoulders above any other team out there. And with a six car, with a with a six car effort at this year's 500, Alonzo is going to have a mountain of data to sift through and see what works at the speedway for him. Right. Um, a lot of people have probably made the assumption that Alonzo will struggle in his first time out. Some have made the even less fair assumption that Alonzo will dominate just because he's a Formula One driver going up against uh, inferior IndyCar competition on a simple track where all you do is just turn left for 200 laps. Um, we've no. seen a lot of takes like this, and uh, they're they're not they're bad. They're they're pretty bad takes. Oval racing is difficult, especially if you've never done it before, especially if you're jumping into the biggest race of them all. Yeah, like, for people who bring up Alexander Rossi last year, Rossi, I would say, is truly an outlier when it comes to rookie attempts at the 500 for someone who has, I wouldn't even say, like, little to no experience because he had, you know, he raced at Phoenix earlier that year. He'd done, like, a whole bunch of testing before May had even started. Right. Whereas Alonzo, when he takes the track for the first time in the month of May... This will be his first competitive laps ever on an oval. But Alonso's a two-time world champion. He'll have some of the best preparation in the business. I'm not entirely sure it's going to be all that much of an uphill battle. I wouldn't be surprised if he was in the fast nine and qualified in the front three rows. I wouldn't even be surprised if he was a contender for the win. I certainly wouldn't be surprised if he won the whole thing. Yeah, I'd probably say the best take when it came to how Alonzo would do at Indianapolis, came from three-time winner Dario Franchitti, and it was probably like the most level-headed thing that I like the mo- most level-headed like article that I've seen about Alonzo going because he wrote a a column for Motorsport Magazine, and I think let me read the best paragraph quote. Yeah, what. So what can Alonzo realistically expect? I think to expect him to compete with the absolute front-running guys is a big ask. Over one lap, I don't think it'll be a problem, but to expect him to compete with these guys up front in the race, lap after lap, is going to be a massive ask. As we saw with Rossi last year, anything is possible with strategy, but on pure pace, it will be difficult to compete. 
Of course that, it yeah, would be. It, that's and just from experience. It, he certainly got the talent, but the front runners have got that talent too. Got that talent too alongside years and even decades of experience in indie cars and the speedway. End quote. Right. It's definitely a much different scenario than when you had guys like Juan Pablo Montoya come in and just dominate right off the get-go when he won it the first time in 2000. This is arguably one of the most competitive and one of the highest quality Indy 500 fields we've had in a while, in a long, long while, where even like the one-off rookies in this field, where you have guys like the aforementioned Jack Harvey and Zach Veach, they're all top quality guys. And that's before you even get to the proven talents, the guys like Scott Dixon, Elio Castroneves, Tony Kanaan, Ryan Ray, Will Power, um, Juan Pablo Montoya, who's coming back, going to have a chance to face off against his old rival from F1, which will be yes. awesome. My two faves from the mid-2000s back together again. Oh, it's so beautiful. Um, yeah, and especially when considering how competitive and close this race has always been run, for the last couple of years since they instituted the DW12 chassis. Um, none of the winners have come from the first three rows in the field since 2012. And uh, it's always been a close race with a lot of overtaking for the lead. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a really close race. I think one of the things that earlier in the in the column that, that Dario harps on that, you re- like... Indianapolis and most ovals are unlike, you know, road courses, period. doesn't matter if they're European road courses or American road courses, that you can't afford to make a mistake. The The moment you go offline, uh, the first thing that you're going to run into is the wall, and it's over. There's, there's, no, there's no utilizing runoff or grass or anything. The moment you make a mistake, you're going to have a problem, and it's usually a big one. Yeah, it's Indianapolis Motor Speedway is a pretty demanding track. It's it's never good to have fear of the track, but it's always good to have respect of the track and especially the limits of what you can achieve and what happens when you step over those limits. It's not a coincidence that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, especially in its earlier years, racked up more fatalities than all the other Formula One World Championship venues combined yeah. since 1950. Um, just a little statistical note about Fernando Alonso. There have been 12 other former Formula One world champions who have gone on to compete in the Indianapolis 500 at some point elsewhere in their careers. They are Jack Brabham, Graham Hill, Emerson Fittipaldi, Nelson Piquet, Nigel Mansell, Alberto Ascari, Jim Clark, Jackie Stewart, Denny Holm, Jochen Rint, Mario Andretti, and Jacques Villeneuve. I think Graham Hill... Yeah, I think there's one name that you forgot from that list that's probably the most apt comparison to Fernando Alonso, and that's Juan Manuel Fangio. Oh, yes. Um, Juan Manuel Fangio, in fact, uh, completed a rookie at test at Indianapolis, but didn't attempt to qualify actually, uh, in he, 1958. Yeah, in the 58-500, he actually did attempt to qualify and failed to qualify. Yeah, um, of course, that's probably not going to happen because with the lease limits on Chevrolet and Honda engines and Delara chassis, um, we're probably going to get right at 33 cars, no more, no less. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, like, I, I make the comparison to Fangio because when Fangio attempted Indianapolis, he was, you know, 
he was at the end of his career, like essentially uh, the thirty the 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 fifty eight season for Fangio was his swan song. He wanted to do everything. He he basically it was a prestige tour. He wanted to win the races that he always wanted to win, and you would say Alonzo's in the same situation where he's at he's at the tail end of his career, wanting to get that triple crown of motorsport, which I'm pretty sure we'll get more into later. But when Fangio entered the 58 season, he was only a part-time driver in Formula One. He only raced in uh, uh, the French Grand Prix and the Indianapolis 500 because he always wanted to race at Indianapolis. And it was sort of on a bet that he raced in Indianapolis. Mm. Mm. And, of course, this time out, it's on really just McLaren trying to do something, anything, to try and keep Fernando Alonso happy. Because if you've watched this season, or really any season since the start of 2015, the McLaren-Honda tenure at Fernando Alonso's career has not gone exactly to plan. There were championship aspirations, certainly aspirations of victories. That has not materialized, and in 2017, they've actually taken steps back. So McLaren, under the new management of new CEO Zach Brown, have realized that maybe it's time we start um, give, letting Fernando Alonso just do something else and give him a chance to be competitive in a race, and it might lead to an opportunity for us later on down the road because here's the thing. McLaren are getting back into the Indianapolis 500 for the first time in like 40 years, yeah. and they have said themselves that the possibility of them going full-time at IndyCar at some point in some capacity, that's not entirely off the table. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened sometime in the next couple of years. Yeah, and it, it really seems that McLaren as an as a team, because I'm pretty sure Zach Brown iterated that during the announcement that he he wants McLaren to be a multidiscipline outfit, which is like very similar to how McLaren was in the early days before Ron Dennis took over where right and Ron Dennis and Bernie Ecclestone have probably have said I know Bernie Ecclestone has said that he wouldn't have had yeah. Alonso run the Indianapolis 500 but you're not in charge anymore Bernie even though I, I highly doubt he would have been able to stop that I don't know how he would have been able to stop that no, 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 not really. And, like, for those who don't know, Zach Brown comes from an American sports car background, and he he, hark, he harkened back to, you know, the days of the uh, Canadian-American Challenge Cup, better known as Can-Am, and Zach Brown, you know, as a driver and a team owner at United Autosports, raced in IMSA, so, yeah, and they also raced in the European Le Mans, and they won at Silverstone this weekend. So yeah. good job for United Autosport. Yeah, and it's you can see that McLaren's also expanding their their sports car program because they have this you know uh, GT3 program. I think what uh, Shane Van Gisbergen is one of their was one of their drivers. I think he went the yes, Mercedes. Was now. one of their drivers up till up until the end of 2016, and now is with uh, Mercedes AMG. Uh, yeah, like McLaren, like Zach Brown is teased that McLaren would go to Le Mans, not not in a prototype capacity, but in a GT capacity. And you could tell that the early days of McLaren were probably similar to the current days of McLaren, where. McLaren was not particularly successful in Formula One. Oh, where no, no. <laughs> not, not at all. Not in the slightest. Like, during his time 
running, like, during his time of actually driving at McLaren, Bruce McLaren himself only had one Grand Prix victory. But it was in Can-Am where he made his money, where where his team were just completely unbeatable up to and even at some points after McLaren himself passed away in a testing accident in 1970. Uh, McLaren were really the institution of Can-Am racing. The McLaren Orange that everybody fawns over (laughs) is more synonymous with their Can-Am sports car program than it is for Formula One. Yeah, they, they, I think only for like two or three seasons they actually ran the Orange in Formula One. But like, yeah, the season before Bruce McLaren died testing the Can-Am car for 1970. 1969, McLaren won every single race that year. They won all 11 Can-Am rounds. And beat up down. <laughs> and Bruce McLaren won the Can Am title by five points over his teammate Denny Holm. And for like that period in Can Am racing, Can Am was known as the Bruce and Denny show because that's who you expected to win during that four year period. Yeah. I do have a note from the uh, from the Indianapolis from the IndyCar Series press release that the last driver to run F1 and the Indianapolis 500 in the same season, Teo Fabi in 1984. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, so it's been a long, long time, and obviously in the era of specialization and lucrative driver contracts and not wanting anything bad to happen to your drivers, um, just going off and doing some secondary interests, we see less and less of this crossover, but. Fernando Alonso getting a chance to do this race, I'm going to be honest, as the 15th year, as the longtime Fernando Alonso fan that I am and do a very poor job of hiding on this show, uh, I am really excited. My dad is really excited. He was excited when I told him the news about this. I think we are all excited. I think regardless of how you feel about Alonso and Formula One, especially lately, it's hard not to be just thrilled for this, especially if you're like us and you also are fond of IndyCar competition and you see what it has to offer compared to Formula One these days. It offers much closer competition. It offers a true marquee race that stands alone above all the rest. Um, There's a lot of reason to be excited. And I've seen people say that, oh no, Fernando Alonso shouldn't win. That'll make IndyCar look bad. I don't know i don't necessarily agree with that i think fernando alonso can i think ideally we'd like fernando alonso to be up in contention in a very very close multi-horse race for the victory in the closing lap see that's that's the ideal yeah and like i given, don't know like i i see it in like to bring up pro wrestling terms that partially like it would feed the 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 f1 snob group if i would were to say if alonso were to go to speedway and win that essentially it would be an easy way to to bury the indycar like the indycar group of drivers as being quote-unquote not good enough for formula one that's why they're there uh it's it's just so tough to say that especially when they spent all this last week just criticizing fernando alonso for making this movement to begin with yeah, yeah, it's it's more of like, like they criticize Alonzo for doing it because a lot, quote unquote, he's too good for you know Indianapolis that he's missing out on Monaco, which is quote unquote the crown jewel of Formula One, which is partially to be up- fair. 
Yeah, it it makes up part of the traditional Triple Crown, which Graham Hill is the only person that has won it. And even that is under some degree of scrutiny if you look further and further into the history of Graham Hill's Triple Crown attempt. Yeah. I get that it is a big event in terms of prestige, but in terms of excitement, there is a fair argument to be made that if you were to choose between the Monaco Grand Prix and the Indianapolis 500, you'd pick the Indianapolis 500 12 times out of 10. Yeah. Pretty much like Monaco, I'm pretty sure Dre. If Dre were here, he would just bury Monaco. But I would, I'm, Andre I'm, Harrison. What have you done? <laughs> I'm here to defend. Like, I could. Monaco was one of those races where anyone could win, and it was a test of driver skill. It used to be a a, a hundred lap duel, where the for when it when it was in its heyday, it was unlike any other track on the. On, on, you know, the Grand Prix circuit. And in some respect, it still is unlike any track on the Grand Prix circuit, but you almost kind of get the sense that maybe uh, Formula One has outgrown it. Yeah. As like a circuit. Th- that's the thing. Monaco hasn't changed at all, which a bit in itself is the problem. Like, of course, they've shortened the race to make it more, you know, palatable for television. They've... But mainly... Your point is the most true. The cars have outgrown it. You can't you can't race at Monaco like you could before. Like even up to the early and mid seventies, where you could actually overtake at Monaco and actually have close wheel to wheel racing at Monaco. Monaco, you can't do that anymore. The cars are just too fast. Like to use a baseball analogy, imagine if Major League Baseball still played at some of these um, these these uh, diamond bots ballparks that were like 470 feet in the power alleys and like 500 feet down dead away center. Oh God, the polo grounds. God, no. (laughs) But but instead, it's not like 200 feet down the line, so you can't just hit a bloop single for a home run. Yeah. All the outfield is just 400 feet out and further. And that's basically what Monaco Grand Prix is. But back to Alonzo at the Indianapolis 500. I am pretty excited to see this. I think we've all been pretty excited to see this. I was convinced that this was just a prank from everyone in my yes. circle of friends <laughs> in the media. Because no way, no way was this supposed to happen. Like, April Fool's was a week ago, guys. You guys? You guys, this is a joke. Just, just stop it. This is a terrible joke. <laughs> So, who's going to run the Monaco Grand Prix with Fernando Alonso at Indianapolis? Because we would need, like, a we'd need like some breakthrough in human cloning or a new Concorde or both for him to do both events. Who is going to replace Fernando Alonso at well, McLaren? They at the time dope. of the announcement, they legitimately did not know who was going to replace Fernando Alonso. Some people just jumped to the obvious conclusion but forgot that um said obvious conclusion was living a new life with his girlfriend in southern california yeah yeah that that's true um and if you haven't seen his girlfriend snapchat he is living it up at coachella he was living it up at coachella last weekend dude coachella sucks this year (laughs) it didn't suck because jensen button was there Oh, yes, Jensen Button was eventually named um, replacement. And there were certainly a lot of drivers that stepped forward, including McLaren Jr. Lando Norris. We'll talk oh. about that in a bit. Um, 
One Mitchell Evans threw his hat in the ring because he is from New Zealand and McLaren obviously should probably have a New Zealand driver uh, to fulfill the legacy of Bruce McLaren, at which point I responded, yeah, but Nick Cassidy, doesn't he have like a super formula race that weekend? I don't know. Yeah. Unless like Honda was like, no, we're not having Nick Cassidy. Ah, man. So it's, uh, so it's going to be Jensen Button and Stoffel Van Dorn running the Monaco Grand Prix. While Fernando Alonso is running the Indianapolis 500, and I thought that innovative three-driver strategy line was just a bunch of marketing <laughs> bullcrap. Yeah, who who knew who knew that it wasn't a bunch of bullcrap? Like, it's it's nice to see Button come back for hopefully, hopefully. I pray to God that this is one last ride. Yeah. Um, and I certainly hope it ends uh, it ends on good terms with at least a solid top 10 finish because with Honda down on power, um, this really stands to be one of their best chances of scoring points um, until, unless they somehow make a huge breakthrough in the second half of the season. Yeah, it's I'm pretty sure we get to that later on when we talk about Bahrain, but it's not looking so good for McLaren. So Monaco is their best chance at points and which Again, like three years ago, if we said that Monaco was McLaren's best chance at points, someone would have probably slapped us silly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's astonishing. And I think it's pretty awesome just seeing Fernando Alonso when he's already dejected about a poor race, which we'll get into. And then somebody asks him about the Indianapolis 500, and he just beams with happiness. It's going to be great. And I think that's, and, that's probably my favorite part about this, that... It's it's something that Alonzo wants to do. That it was clearly like a direction that Zach Brown wanted to take the team. He talked about it in the press conference, almost like he was trying to hit on Alonzo when he was like, he "Oh, looks so happy! He looks <laughs> yes. so happy! He looks the happiest that he's been in years. It's Cause, great." Because when like I feel like the drivers. Like, for the most part, the reason, like, oh, we see the specialization, it's not because the drivers want to be specialized. It's because their teams want them to be specialized. And uh, already, it's already the Alonzo to Indy announcement has gotten people thinking about, hmm, what other drivers from Formula One could do other big standalone events? We've already heard, like, Lewis Hamilton come out and say he'd like to do the Daytona 500. That's something I would really, really like to see and something that... Yes. You know, I, and he's certainly not the only driver that I would like to see do one of these big races on the calendar. Um, but for the... like Sebastian, probably Sebastian Loeb, the, Valentino the, Rossi. Yeah, probably like the, the one disheartening bit of it where uh, Hulkenberg and a number of drivers agreed with Hulkenberg. Hulk, Nico Hulkenberg said he wouldn't have done Le Mans if it had meant missing an F1 race, and he he won't do Indianapolis because it would mean missing an F1 race. But I don't understand, considering he was very... Di- he himself was very disappointed when Le Mans was moved... When the Baku European Grand Prix was scheduled on the same week. In fact, a number of people were up in arms about that clash, and here they are... Turning around the following year and trashing Fernando Alonso for skipping the Monaco Grand Prix to run the Indianapolis 500. Yeah. I mean, I I, get it, but I also don't get it. Yeah, it's again like, oh, how could you do this? But again, like, you're still going to race at Baku 
anyway, despite you completely hating the notion of you not being able... Like, he wasn't able to race at Le Mans for other reasons. Let's not get this wrong, people. Bernie didn't do this to stop one random driver from going to Le Mans. That is, that is very true. It's just... It also just... I don't know. It feels like... It feels like a lot of the peep, the peanut gallery would uh would be very fine with some drivers skipping Baku to run the run the 24 hours of Le Mans if it came down to another clash but not so much skipping Monaco to run the Indianapolis 500 and to me that just kind of smacks of it kind of smacks of snobbery and elitism it really does yeah like probably like people don't think of it this way when it comes to Formula One, like Formula One in the like the grand scheme of things are not that snobbish in like Formula One management. Like the ACO and how they've run the World Endurance Championship, oh my god. Like the amount of arrogance when it comes to clashing dates with Formula E where pretty much they've just like disregarded the Formula E calendar entirely and even when they've asked for could you please just move it back a week and they literally just straight up ignore them they don't say no they just ignore them and the irony is that you look at the fan base of sports car racing like the world endurance championship and the aco and the 24 hours a month they're some of the most open-minded racing fans around yes yes they're just run by elitists and you know not to toot our own horn but we like to think of ourselves as pretty open-minded people we like to see drivers like fernando alonso get these opportunities so Fernando, I do hope you do well at Indianapolis. We're all gonna be, I know, I know, I'm gonna be rooting for him on the uh, on the day of classics number yes. two, the second one uh, for the 101st running of the Indianapolis 500. I'm, um, I'm gonna be rooting on him just for just sheer nostalgia reasons. I just, I just probably some of my favorite race cars were the McLaren Can-Am cars. Oh my goodness! Imagine if it was Alonzo versus Montoya for the win in Indianapolis. I would, I would not be able to handle myself. The internet would explode. Uh, like I'm being yeah. legit. <laughs> the internet would explode. Oh my goodness! I wouldn't know who to, I wouldn't know who to cheer for. And if Joseph Newgarden got in that fight, oh buddy. Mm. Mm. <laughs> right. Um, should we talk about Formula One getting stupid in the desert? Yes, we talk about Formula One's duel in the desert. Let's go to Bahrain. One World Championship took place in the Desert Kingdom of Bahrain. It is a human rights quagmire, but a very pretty setting. It's always one of the most complicated races on the calendar. Because and quote unquote McLaren's as... home race. That's true. Also the home race of Kimi Raikkonen. <laughs> just uh just ask just uh look at his track record, and it's true. Obviously, a driver like that wouldn't be able to perform as well at a track unless it was clearly their home track. That is that is also true. <laughs> yeah. So we enter the Bahrain Grand Prix with the bombshell announcement that Fernando Alonso was going to run the Indianapolis 500. 
That is about as much happiness as he's going to get all weekend, apart from making it into Q2 on Saturday and qualifying threw up a massive surprise. Valtteri Botas taking his first pole position over Lewis Hamilton by by a margin of like nothing. Yeah, it was pretty much like you could lay down a sheet of printer paper and that's probably like the gap between the cars. 23 one thousandths of a second was the margin between Botas's pole time and the second place time of Lewis Hamilton. Mercedes locking out the front row for the first time this year. After two back-to-back Hamilton and Vettel front rows, Sebastian Vettel would start third ahead of Daniel Ricciardo, Kimi Raikkonen, and Mats Verstappen. And Mats Verstappen got himself into a bit of trouble this weekend, would you say? Uh, I'd say a large amount of trouble. Like, I'm pretty sure he offended the largest country in South America. Yeah, yeah, he he absolutely did. Um, so it it was a uh, it came out after qualifying after Felipe Massa and Max Verstappen had a little bit of kerfuffling. Um, Verstappen felt that Massa impeded his uh, his his uh, warm up lap in Q three, and Verstappen said uh, just very offhandedly without even thinking about it. Um, if, when asked if he wanted to speak to Massa about the incident, Verstappen just said, well, he's a Brazilian, so there's not much to discuss. And this had everybody understandably heated because it was a very off-color comment from somebody who has already shown that they don't have the best relationship with the press or indeed the best showing of tact. Take it from me, I have no tact. Yeah, like, when I realized how big... I realized how big this was when I see Tony Kanaan tweeting in Portuguese, uh, what just happened with Max? And I'm like, oh dear God. Yeah, it's getting bad to the point where even a lot of our most ardent Max Verstappen supporters in, in our collective group of friends are just like, no, we're done with you, dude. Yes, like... Which, and it's very disappointing because I had just been on the record, I believe it was the last episode where I just said, Max is really maturing as a driver and I'm glad to see more of this. And sure enough, he just fires off this really careless comment to the press. I mean, that's my largest issue with Max Verstappen. On track, he's maturing very well. He's extremely, superbly talented on track. Off the track, though... Might as well still be 16 years old. He's, yeah, he's kind of a bit of a PR nightmare to the point where you almost have to suggest that maybe he should get, like, a manager to do his interviews for him. Um, yes. And it, it really like, is Like, is Paul Heyman available for bookings? Um, probably, probably now that it's past WrestleMania season and Brock only does the big shows. <laughs> um, anyway, so Matt Spursappen said something stupid. Felipe Massa since uh, responded, basically saying... Watch what you say next time, or you just might get some, uh, just might get into some bigger trouble down the road. Yeah, I have the um, exact quote here. He told, he, he said this to a Brazilian radio station. He's, he said, quote, I told him earlier today, be careful with your words, because you, you will have a Brazilian Grand Prix at the end of the year, and you'll have to race there. So be careful what you say. Yeah, um, and if, Brazil is known to, uh, Brazil had a large, um, gosh, they did not like Lewis Hamilton for a while. And I could just only imagine what it would be like when Max Verstappen shows up at Brazil if he does nothing to kind of uh, smooth things over. 
between yeah. now and then because it could get it could get bad. It could get like WrestleMania Monday <laughs> oh levels of bad. Like I still remember like probably the only country that like hated Lewis worse than Brazil was probably like Spain in 2007. And that was like the only reason it was worse than that because the FIA threatened to cancel the Spanish Grand Prix that year. Yes, because yes, because they admittedly because a lot of the Spanish supporters went way too goddamn far by showing by turning up in blackface to mock Lewis Hamilton, which is not on. Um, right. Should we go into the race? Should we go into and discuss the fact that Sebastian Vettel? Won the Bahrain Grand Prix, and Dre is not here to gloat about it. He's yeah. not here to gloat about the best start for Ferrari driver in 13 years. Yes, best start for Ferrari driver in 13 years. Oh, Vettel leads the driver's championships by seven points after three rounds. Yes, and he gets a little bit of that. Uh, he he got kind of screwed up in those back-to-back safety car virtual safety car and real safety car sequences in china where he got shuffled down to sixth having to make an extra pit stop this time it worked out into his favor because he was one of the first drivers to pit before the safety car came out on lap 12 for a collision involving carlos signs and lance stroll who were the fifth fourth and fifth retirements of the race there was a lot of early attrition stoffel van dorn didn't even get to start Kevin Magnuson dropped out early, and if you're somebody that believes in karma, you might think it may have struck Max Verstappen the lap before the crash because his brakes went out as he was running um, well in contention for a podium spot. But yeah, Carlos Sainz and Lance Stroll had a bit of a coming together in a, in turn one, two, and three. Um, if you're kind of a less than light person, you would likely think, oh, well, that's just Stroll being the underqualified, over overfunded pay driver that he is when actually it turns out no Carlos Sainz actually just kind of turned in on him because even I mean, the best no, no, make mistakes yeah it, it was a weird situation where I don't see what Carlos Sainz was thinking because Lance Roll had already committed to the corner while uh, while Sainz was exiting pit lane so Stroll was already turning in and I don't know if you know Sainz thought he could you know Force Lance Stroll to go a bit wide, but he tried to, you know, peek in on corner apex, and it obviously did not turn out well for either driver. Yeah, and for that, Carlos Sainz will get a three-grid spot penalty for the next round in Russia, which I think it, it about suits it. Sainz you know? isn't a driver with a reputation, but he has to know that that was kind of uh, not exactly on. So after that safety car, Vettel cycles back to the lead of the race ahead of Valtteri Bottas. Cue Chris Cook's mood suddenly plummeting and his stress levels rising oh and rising as he realizes that victory is slipping further and further away from his guy. Like, I, it's... During the race, I had no idea what was going on with Bottas. After the race, when I'd come out, I could see... Mercedes completely botched Botas's race for a variety of reasons, which is surprising because um, early in the race, well, I'd say even before the start of the race, uh, Botas's rear tires had the wrong tire pressure in them. They That's why he, had, he complained about a lack of rear grip, which isn't 
uncommon for Bahrain. Bahrain's known for having a lot of thermal degradation. So yep. anytime you step on the gas, you wear out the rear tires quicker than you normally do. That was exaggerated on Botas's cars because they had improperly inflated his rear tires. Also, yeah, to that's also that's some basic uh, elementary road trip <laughs> kind of stuff. You don't underinflate the tires or overinflate them. You do what what that says in the owner's manual. Also on the grid, um, his oh god, uh, his one of his motor generator units on the car also broke on the grid. So he was for about the first half for the like the first half of the race for I think the first about fifteen to twenty laps. Uh, he wasn't regenerating enough power to feed back into the car, so he he was da- also down on power. Yeah, so that's um. So in actuality, it's kind of impressive that he got third place out of what could have been a much worse situation. Looking back on it in retrospect, of course, at the time, some of us were all just kind of in total meltdown mode. Speaking of total meltdown mode and salvaging something from wait, it. Wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not. Well, oh. this kind of fuels into the whole Lewis thing as well, where um, I was I was shocked and I'm, like almost disgusted during the race that Mercedes had employed team orders that uh, they told Botas to pull over to let Lewis through on two occasions. Oh, N- yeah. Now, after the race, it makes sense. Like, Toto Wolf even like quote from Toto Wolf uh, our generator broke on the grid and we couldn't bleed Valtteri's tires so we were starting with completely wrong tire pressures on his car we knew he would be struggling like like oh oh not not the MUG okay uh, the, the generator that powers the, the tire inflator broke okay right yeah so looking back on it and that was one of the big controversies uh, after the race that Mercedes are finally starting to use team orders and put Valtteri Bottas in his place because they don't want another Hamilton versus rival, uh, Rosberg rivalry on their hands, <laughs> which I get it. That makes sense. It annoys some people because we want to see healthy competition between teammates. That was what made Hamilton versus Rosberg so good the last couple of years. Like, yes, they're teammates in the most overpowered car, but they're competing on equal footing, as stressful as it is sometimes. Um, in this race, we started to see cracks of, uh, started to see cracks in that, um, philosophy in Hamilton going through Botas unopposed twice. This despite a five second time penalty for, um, for, um, some pit entry shenanigans on his first stop. Yes, during his pit entry, he drove excessively slow on a pit entry to, to slow down Dan Ricardo entering the pit lane because Hamilton knew that he would be... Uh, he was being double stacked with Botas, so he hoped by slowing down Ricardo, he could buy himself some more time to, you know, get out ahead of Ricardo, which yeah. didn't work. Didn't work exactly. Picks up the penalty. Mercedes have two very deliberate stops for both Botas and Hamilton, it almost looking like they weren't really prepared to do a double stack. Um, Hamilton serves his five-second penalty um, in his second stop. And from there, he is just off to the races trying to chase down Sebastian Vettel and finishes just 6.6 seconds behind, which you kind of have to think, if not for that penalty, maybe this race could have been a lot closer. Yeah, it could have been a lot closer. Yeah, it could have been a lot closer for both Mercedes drivers. Essentially, partway through the race, 
uh, when they knew Botas was struggling and Lewis had the penalty that essentially they had given up on the, they had given up on the race win. They're essentially racing a strategy against Kimi Raikkonen to hopefully finish two three. Yeah, it um they it to to their credit they did the two three just perfectly, but there were points when we were watching the race where we were thinking, what are obviously Total Wolf's thinking? I don't know what the hell he's thinking. Yeah, where they ended up in situations where maybe if Botas wasn't struggling, I'm pretty like one of the strategies I was hoping they would do, knowing that Lewis had the time penalty but was one of the fastest cars out there that they would essentially use him to to slow up Vettel that they would run him hopefully get in front or at least battle with Vettel to slow him down for Botas who was unpenalized it didn't quite work out like that um and Hamilton eventually did finish 14 seconds up the road on Botas um Kimi Raikkonen finished fourth Daniel Ricciardo finished fifth I thought this was a very I thought this was a pretty decent race. Yeah, there weren't a whole lot of overtakes by Bahrain standards recently. Um, 48 in total, 18 of them DRS assisted, I believe. Yes. Um, it was certainly a much... It kind of felt like there were points where this race was silly and eventful, and other times where it just kind of felt like, oh, this is routine enough. Yeah, it felt uh, probably the high points of the... Like, the high... like. The plus, the positives of the race were that it was a strategic battle between two different teams. Because usually if it's in if it was Hamilton Rosberg, strategy for the most part wouldn't be a factor. Lead car would get the would get the optimal strategy, and they would just duke it on and track to see who wins. This you like strategy was a part of the entry with this race, which you didn't see in previous years, which actually made it even more interesting despite the you know lack of overtaking at the front yeah and it's crazy to think ferrari the team we've given so much shit for being so bad with strategies are actually coming through and coming good on their strategic calls who knew yeah who knew i think i i think it's partially because of the the new less you know the new less degradating (laughs) degradating tires that they they found you know a combination that works well for how they think strategically that is that is definitely true and it's it's pretty awesome to see that this fight you know maybe there was some skepticism after qualifying that could ferrari keep could ferrari keep it up after all was albert park just a fluke was that Vettel result just a flash in the pan? As it turns out, no. Despite the fact that Ferrari still haven't gotten it quite right on qualifying, the race pace is outstanding. <laughs> yes, yes, still outstanding. Like, for the most part of the race, Sebastian Vettel was setting fast lap after fast lap. It was impressive. It was certainly something, and of course... Dre's not here to gloat about it. <laughs> poor, but, poor Dre. Yeah, just soaking, soaking in that uh, British sunshine over at a over at a certain undisclosed racetrack where they're having bicycles, which you will, which you can find out more on Bike Live this week on the Motorsport One Hundred and One Network. 
Um, both Force Indias made it into the points again, including Sergio Perez, who came back from 18th on the grid to finish 7th, and Esteban Kokan finishing points for the third straight race in a row to become the youngest driver ever to score points in three consecutive Grand Prix. Eat it for Staffen. Yeah, that it. Yep, yeah, that is uh, that is something. Um, Romain Grosjean scored his first points of the year, finishing eighth after a difficult weekend in China. Nico Hulkenberg got into the points for Renault for the first time, and finished well up the road on Julian Palmer. This was also something to talk about because both Hulkenberg and Palmer made it into Q3. This was Palmer's best qualifying result ever, and it still wasn't impressive to a lot of people because he was still getting shellacked by Hulkenberg. Which, again, uh, is partially unfair. Like, again, I would say Palmer is doing below my expectations for him, but, like, him, you know, being, you know, outshone by Hulkenberg shouldn't be a surprise. Like, this is the same Nico Hulkenberg that almost got a Mercedes factory seat and almost got a Ferrari factory seat. If the factories yeah. believe in Hulkenberg, this kid clearly has something. Right. And um, that's good to see Renault get their first couple of points. I think it's obvious that they still have a ways to go in terms of finding race pace in their car. Their one lap speed is outstanding. Their race pace, not so much. But for Hulkenberg to hold on and get ninth place points... Uh, open up his account. That's pretty astounding. And give credit also to Roman Grosjean. Both Haas drivers in the points, something we couldn't say last year. And now Kevin Madison and Roman Grosjean are level at four points apiece. Uh, three races into the season with still much more to go. And that Haas Ferrari looks pretty stout as a midfield car. Yeah, I mean, the midfield, I know we didn't talk about it too much, but the midfield is extremely, extremely close. Because right now at Constructors' Championship, only nine points separate Haas in seventh and fourth place Force India. Right. It is, uh, it's pretty close. And even those two teams, which aren't on the board right now, they are Sauber and McLaren. They've shown at times that if, uh, if the cards fall right, they can get some pretty good points. Yeah. The McLaren and Honda is fragile as all get out, but Alonzo in the first three rounds has shown, Hey, this car could probably score some points if it just managed to finish a damn race. Yeah. I mean, uh, I would, Early in the season, I wasn't so optimistic about Force India, but three races on, and they're they're one of three teams to score points at like have both their cars score points at every race. Only and remember Merce- they came yeah they came back from 14th and 18th on the grid to get both cars in the points. This was looking like a bad weekend for Force India. Yeah, only Ferrari, Mercedes, and Force India have scored points at every opportunity so far this season. That is pretty, pretty outstanding. Speaking of outstanding performances, we need to talk about the first guy who didn't get into points, first guy off the lead lap, but in the context of what he has been through the past couple of months and a lot of the criticism that has been levied his way for how he has missed the first two rounds of the championship, Pascal Verlein finishing 11th for Sauber um, was an incredible achievement, especially knowing now what we know about the extent of the injuries that he suffered in the 2017 race of champions in Miami, basically had suffered a broken freaking neck yes. and has been recovering and has been fast track recovering that from that for two months. Um, 
to his credit, tried to run the first two races of the season only to realize that he wasn't going to be well enough to finish the race. But now that he's back to what we can assume is 100% health, or at least pretty close to it, Pascal Verline, uh, yeah, he's still really good, guys. Yeah, he's still really good. 11th place, put Sauber up in 9th. And, yeah, I think one of the things from Verline that changed a lot of fittings over the weekend was the pictures that he tweeted out of his recovery that, for some reason, people, like, people didn't know what a fractured cervical, like, cervical bone was. They didn't know that that was a neck problem. That they didn't know that was literally a broken freaking neck, despite us saying so over the past couple of weeks. Right. And it's at least good to see some people have come around and said, like, yeah, you know, we kind of we kind of misjudged this one. And it's good to see that Verline is getting some redemption out of this. And I think that with more races like that, I think it could carry Sauber into the points, despite the fact that they have a year old car and barely any money to get by and develop theirs. Yeah, it's ooh, it's going to be a hard climb for Sauber. Like, I, maybe they could take 8th away from Renault, but it's going to be hard not to finish, like, it's it's going to be impossible to finish outside the bottom three spots, but, like, above 8th, I don't see them finishing higher than 8th in the Constructors. That, I mean, that's fair, but Verline can certainly give them some outstanding results, especially as his strength continues to build back up especially as the season goes on and Pascal Verline already has a year of experience under his belt and he can he can do some pretty outstanding things in that car um for whatever criticism has been levied towards Pascal about his attitude I think um I think this past the past couple of weeks have shown that maybe we did kind of uh misjudge the situation a bit um some people misjudged it a lot more than just a bit and I think it was good to see Pascal get some sort of redemption out of it and get a good result out of this race. Oh, goodness. All right. So um, just as a quick rundown of the Bahrain results, Sebastian Vettel wins the 2017 Gulf Air Bahrain Grand Prix by six seconds over Lewis Hamilton. Valtteri Bottas finishes third. Kimi Raikkonen finishes fourth for the second Ferrari. Daniel Ricciardo finishes fifth in the Red Bull Racing Tag Heuer. Sixth was Felipe Masso who had a productive day in the Williams Mercedes. Seventh was Sergio Perez, again climbing 11 spots from 18th on the grid to get into seventh. Romain Grosjean with his first points finish in eighth. Same for Nico Hulkenberg in ninth. Esteban Ocon in 10th. Pascal Verlein one spot out of the points in 11th. Danny Kvyat had a adventurous start to the race and eventually was relegated to 12th. Jolie and Palmer was 13th, the last car to finish. Fernando Alonso, the last car classified, stopping three laps short of the finish in 14th. Marcus Erickson, Carlos Sainz, Lance Stroll, and Mats Verstappen and Kevin Magnussen did not finish. Stoffel Van Dorn was a DNS. So after three rounds, they construct the Drivers' Championship looks like this. Vettel leads with 68-61 to 61 for Lewis Hamilton. Valtteri Bottas is third with 38 points. Kimi Räikkönen in fourth at 34 points. Mats Verstappen is fifth at 25 points. And Daniel Ricciardo is sixth at 22 points with Massa seventh at 16 points. Perez... 14 points in 8th, Carlos Sainz still ninth with 10 points, and Romain Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen tied at 4 points apiece with Grosjean getting the tiebreaker and holding on to 10th. 
And in the Constructors' Championships, it is 102 to 99, advantage Ferrari over Mercedes. Red Bull at 47 points and a distant third. Force India is fourth at 17 points. Fifth is Mercedes at 16 points, all scored by Lance, uh, all scored by Felipe Massa. Scuderia Toro Rosso sits at 12 points. Haas with eight points in seventh place, and Renault is eighth with two points. And that's the story. After three races, the next one coming up in Russia at Sochi. Yes, the the Sochi Grand Prix. That should be an exciting, well, hopefully exciting race. Like, I believe in the Sochi layout. A lot of people don't. It's, I mean, it is kind of hard to build something else other than what they've got, considering the, the buildings just have to be there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to do with what you got. Yeah, you, you literally, like, they built it for the Winter Olympic Games a couple of years ago, and that's what they got. They got to build around that with the roads already there. I think they paved down a couple new roads, like they repaved everything for the racetrack. But, like, besides the pitch structure, everything else has to be there. It's not like uh, it's not like they planned ahead of time that there would be a Russian Grand Prix before the Winter Olympic Games, unlike wink wink nudge nudge the Atlanta games where they knew that you know there was going to be a major league ballpark there afterwards now question uh king do you think we'll get to see uh shots of vladimir putin and donald trump at their home grand prix in the stands i think we're gonna see putin but we're not going to see donald trump because like believe it or not putin is actually a formula one fan (laughs) I mean, that is true. He is one of Renault's most prolific test drivers in the last <laughs> decade. I mean, go look at the photos. It's true. And he was pretty decent for someone with, like, zero experience. I'd say I'd say he smashed about 20 lap records alone. <laughs> and he, and he, he, only, he only went to one track, and he set 20 different course records in 20 different venues. It's amazing. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. But are we, are we well, going to talk about the... The probably the the elephant in the room, the the last driver classified at the Bahrain Grand Prix. Um, the last driver classified at the yes, we can we can talk about Fernando Alonso who um who was having an eventful race again was running up near the points until the engine just kind of mm, well did its Honda thing, and Fernando Alonso parked it with just a couple of laps left in the race. Um, King, did he not say, didn't he say something about the fact that he was going to keep doing this if this kept on going? Yes. He told the Spanish press, which Ted Kravitz conveniently translated to English and gave to the English-speaking world, that Fernando Alonso stated that he would give 100% during the race, but if he was not in the points by the, near the end, he would retire the car on or before the last lap. Oh, goodness. And he said oh, this man. before the race, not not afterwards, beforehand. Yeah, so it eventually came true. I mean, and honestly, I don't blame Fernando Alonso. Plus, like, you're guaranteed to have a much more competitive Honda drive in just a month, man. You don't yeah. need to push yourself. You don't need to overexert for those last couple laps. Something yeah. bad could happen. Yeah, and, like, and surprisingly enough, McLaren can't confirm or deny what Alonso said because you're not allowed to retire a Formula One car unless it has a technical pro- like unless there's technical technical problem or the driver has a physical issue. If retiring the car would mean a disqualification, 
and essentially they've basically gone along the road saying Alonzo says the car had a power unit problem, so they re- so they retired the car. Not that the car had a power unit problem, that Alonzo said that the car had a power unit problem. Yeah, I mean, the big power unit problem for McLaren Honda is the fact that the power unit just doesn't work right. Yeah. It never has. <laughs> just ask Stoffel Van Doren, who was uh, live streaming his workout when he should have been racing. Yeah, which again, Van Doren in the press conference at the start of the weekend said that most likely he will also miss a Grand Prix this season. Oh, do you think Jensen Button will be available for some more uh, Grand Prix, or will they have to dig deeper into the depth chart? <laughs> deeper into the depth chart. It's like, damn, we're, we're talking about McLaren we're talking Honda. About... We're talking about yeah, McLaren talk... Honda in the same light as, like, the Cleveland Browns quarterback position. We're talking about the possibility that a driver like Oliver Turby or Nobuhara Matsushita or Nick DeVries or Lando Norris could conceivably drive a Formula One race for McLaren. It's not It's not looking good at all. I mean, those are all really talented drivers, but ideally, you want your two best hands, and those happen to be Alonzo and Van Dorn. You already know you're not going to have both those drives for one race. Uh, it may be a case that you may not have them for a second one further down the road. Who knows? Yeah, because <sighs> I don't know. This is, again, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, rumors. I don't know if there's actually a conflicting date, but apparently uh, Stoffel Van Dorn will be, like, Stoffel Van Dorn is rumored to either be racing during the Spa 24 Hours in his home country of Belgium, or doing a one-off appearance back in Japan, either in Super Formula or Super GT. Please. Please. <laughs> Please. Like, of course, like, oh, one-off performance of the Super GT, he's obviously doing the Suzuka 1000, because it's like the last time will be a Super GT event. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, it would be kind of awkward for him to miss the, uh, for him to run this, the 1,000 kilometers this year, since it also happens to take place on the same weekend as his home Grand Prix in Belgium. Yeah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, oh, I'll also be missing a Grand Prix this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, I give the Belgian Grand Prix a solid three and a half rose water bottles out of five. Because if there was a track for McLaren not to do well this year... <laughs> It's yeah, probably it it's probably Belgium. Spa. <laughs> oh, the ironing. Maybe Spa or Monza or Canada even. The, the, Good lord. The power fest where it's like uh, it's best we stay home. Yeah, I've I've actually got a Honda powered lawnmower. I think they could use the power unit upgrade. <laughs> they could use the power unit upgrade. Like again, like Honda hope that things would change like of course uh their former engine chief i forget his first name but awry that they you know let go they replaced with someone who works in you know honda's production car lines he's used with mass production he used the building power units on a extremely large scale for almost bulletproof reliability and that is not come to fruition quite yet. Maybe next year the reliability can, you know, get to consumer levels. But again, we have to wait and see. And it seems like their drivers don't want to wait to see. 
No, nor do I blame them for that. Yeah. Um, should we talk about some other stuff that happened this weekend? Oh, oh yes, a ton of stuff happened this weekend. It really felt like the big. It felt like the opening day for for single seater racing outside of Formula One. Right. So let's get into it. <laughs> I'm a big dumb idiot, and I missed the first weekend of the FIA Formula 2 Championship. Yes. What exactly happened? Okay, first thing, you have to go see it. Like, it, you can find it through totally legitimate sources on yeah, the Reddit. Yeah, totally legitimate sources. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Nudge, nudge. Uh, like, Formula 2 are very good when it comes to not taking down stuff, so I'm pretty sure you can find it. FIA Formula 2 re weekend i'm pretty sure we we gave you a brief preview last week of the drivers involved so i'm not gonna do that rundown again but let's just say their weekend got to an interesting start when it came to qualifying where charles leclerc pulled essentially a lap of the gods out of the bag and essentially just you know got out of the car parked it and just said you guys go try something and it seemed like we we're getting this huge buildup to someone maybe being able to take down Charles Leclerc. But then Gustav Malia and uh, oh, <laughs> Jeffries, they they ran into... Nabal Jeffrey. Nickel Jeffrey. Pride of Malaysia, Nabal Jeffrey, just... Oh, god! They collided with each other, so yellow flags. And essentially, qualifying was over. No one was taking down Leclerc. But the grid was as follows. Oh, dear. Give me one second while I find the grid. I, I do know that it was an all prima front row. Yes, it was all prima front row. Pole. Antonio Fuco stepping up from GP3, qualifying second. Another GP3 graduate, Nick DeVries, in third. It's all GP3 graduates in the first three spots of the grid. But it didn't turn out that way in the feature race, did it? It didn't turn out that way in the feature race. The feature race was most notably, I'd say it was a three-way fight between Charles Leclerc, Norman Nato, and Artem Markalov. And oh, the agent of chaos. So, essentially, the, the race seemed to be a three-way fight. Up until a point. Artem's engineer said, hey, Artem, we should definitely pit early and go long and see what happens. And... Markov being the the kind the kind open-minded Russian that he is said sure we'll roll with it and so Markov pits early he comes out I think around like sixth or fifth he he slowly throughout the race he he's he's moving his way up the field everyone knows he has one of the fastest cars up there while at the front we have a fight between Charles Leclerc and Norman Nato. Norman Nato, seeing that Artem Markalov is pitting early, still, you know, holds to strategy, but pits like a lap or two earlier than he normally would. And when Charles Leclerc finally comes out, Nato realizes the undercut is on the brink of not working. 
going into Ooh, the first corner at, at, at Bahrain, Nato is behind Leclerc. Heading that run up into turn four, the long left, the, the you know the long right hander, Nacho gets alongside because Leclerc wasn't quick enough because his tires are still cold, and he makes an amazing entire length of turn four around the outside pass on Charles Leclerc. Golly. <laughs> and it was incredible. It was incredible. Nacho takes lead, but it was almost a matter of time. They make it to about like nine or eight laps to go before before Charles Leclerc is able to, you know, sit well with his tires, get the tires warm, get the speed back, and then make a move on Nato. But while we were distracted by the Nato-Leclerc fight, we forgot about the dark horse, Artem Markalov, who plowed his way through the field, made quick work of Norman Nato, and was coming for Charles Leclerc. With three laps to go, Leclerc is, I think, two, like, three seconds back on on Leclerc. Markelhoff is just coming for Leclerc. By the, by the next lap, he's half a second behind. Next lap, he's in the lead. And the next lap, he takes the race win. Man. So, in this new era of Formula 2, um, which is basically just a rebranded GP2 series, but it's Formula 2. Yeah. Um, Artem Markolov, your inaugural winner of this new era of the championship. If you had your money on that, well, you're a damn liar. <laughs> yeah, you're a damn liar. You're a damn liar. And... Um, yeah, it was... Uh, that, was, that seemed like a fun feature race. Now, I woke up about, mm, I want to say, 7 in the morning on Sunday... And I woke up and saw everybody completely losing their shit. Tell me about what happened in the sprint. The sprint, the sprint was very interesting in considering if you know anything about Formula 2, it's the same as GV2, the rules for the sprint race. It's a reverse grid from 8th place onwards. So you finish 8th, you start on pole. Thing was, the guys who finished 7th and 8th did not start on the front row. Masushita's tires, like in the feature race, uh, Masushita had a terrible race, wore out his tires too early. He was he sunk like a rock through the field. For the next race, his team decided, screw it, we'll change our tires. So they had the forfeit pole and start from the pit lane. Antonio Fuco, who was also scheduled to start 7th, had to take a grid drop for a penalty during the feature race. So on pole, I, <laughs> so on pole for the sprint race, uh, it was just an empty box. It was just an empty box. What's going on guys. So, um, goodness, how, how in God's name did Charles Leclerc pull this off? Uh, grit, chaos, and, I, I would want to say not strategy, but race smarts, because it didn't involve any pit strategy, of course, because because during the open, opening lap, probably his biggest threat to taking the race win, Norman Nato, he lost control, at, like in the in the left right after in, in the right left after turn four, he lost it, went into the gravel and into the wall, and he was out of the race. So generally. Mm. His, like, main contenders were, you know, guys on slightly older tires. But, again, this being 
the sprint race before in Formula One in the daylight in Bahrain. It was incredibly hot out. He was able to manage his tires while as well working through the field after taking a pit stop because, you know, he as well was on used tires. So he took a pit stop and was able to work his way all the way through the field and a safety car was deployed. So that also helped. I mean, a safety car was deployed during the first lap, so he didn't have to go as far. But his oh, his pace to take a pit stop during the sprint race, where there's normally no pit stops, and win the race was insane. Golly. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I heard about this result, and I was just like, I can't get to a TV. I can't get to an internet because I have no internet in my mom's house. But I'm just like, go on, Charles. Go on, get him. So Go yeah. on! So yeah, yeah. 11 laps in, he takes a pit stop to get fresh tires off his, you know, completely destroyed tires. And he comes out, he comes out, um, goddamn, he, co- he comes out 23rd, no, he comes out 14th in a 20-car field. It overtakes 13 cars to win the race. In, in a span of like eight laps? Yes. Yes. Man. I am, I'm just astounded. I've been a big proponent of Charles Leclerc's talents ever since he had stepped up from Formula Renault into the European F3 championship. I really thought he was going to be the rookie to take it to the guys like Felix Rosenquist and Antonio Giovinazzi that year. I think his GP3 series win was a big breakthrough victory, and I firmly believe that even after just two races, he could be the next rookie champion in what is now the Formula 2 championship. He now has an eight-point lead over Artem Markalov after two races, 36 to Leclerc, 28 to Markalov. Oliver Rowland had a couple of top fives and finished um, finishes his weekend with 20 points. That's good enough for third. And then three drivers tied at 18 apiece, Luca Giotto, Norman Nato, and Jordan King. Yes. Jordan <laughs> yes. King assists. Good job. Yeah, good I job, did. Yeah, King. great job. <laughs> But yeah, I would say the top six in the championship, they all have a legitimate chance of winning the title. They all showed what really, what made them be able to stake their claim for this year's Formula 2 crown. Leclerc, Markalov, and Nacho, they've all shown that they're proven race winners with race winning speed. On the other hand, you have drivers like Giotto, Roland, and King who've shown that while while they don't have the the blistering outright pace as the other three, they've shown that they're reliable drivers, that they can always get to the end to be able to score points and finish high in the points. And if any of those, you know, three race winners slip up anywhere, they're gonna be there to take the race win away. Yeah, it's it's looking like it's gonna be another good season in Formula Two. Shall we leave the desert and move on to some other miserable, um, <laughs> barren wasteland? Let's go to Silverstone. Let's go to Silverstone, another flat, miserable wasteland where it's just all the weather is bad. Um, there's just nothing for miles and miles. Well, um, why, why can't McLaren have like any like nice home venues? I know, right? Let's talk about the six hours of Silverstone, the first round of the FIA World Endurance Championship and all the support events that came with it. Um, Going into this race, um, it was the Battle of Toyota versus Porsche that we were kind of expecting. They're the last two 
factory teams in LMP1. Um, Toyota opting to bring their high downforce package to a high downforce track at Silverstone. Porsche opting to go with a low downforce package because, well, we can do whatever we want. We're the world champions. The result was as expected as Anthony Davidson, Kazuki Nakajima, and Sebastian Buemi in the number eight Toyota won the race outright. They win the RAC Tourist Trophy, one of the great prizes in racing that has been awarded for over a century, in fact. Yeah. Um, they win the race outright ahead of the number two Porsche of Earl Bamber, Brendan Hartley, and I am... Who is the other driver in that number two car? Gosh, I should know this. Um, basically, Porsche were second and third. Oh, yeah, it was Timo Bernhard. Yeah, I should Timo know that. Bernhard. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think you were just not used to him being in that car. I, I, I was like, I know that there's two New Zealanders in this car. I know Mark Weber had just retired, but who's the other? Oh, okay, it's Timo. Right. And Andre Lauder, Neil Yanni, and Nick Tandy and the other Porsche finishing third in the race um this was an interesting one because toyota when they picked the high downforce package we kind of knew that they were going to uh going to have a distinct advantage on this track but the margin of victory that they left behind was so it was it was enough to put a bit of a scare into toyota for their long-term prospects because even with a low downforce package. Porsche still finished closer off the overall victory than a lot of people had expected. Yeah, like, see. I, I I don't know. For, for me, it seems like, yes, they're using this as, you know, uh, a preparatory event for Le Mans, but them choosing the high downforce package also signals that they are going for that world championship title. Yeah. It was 6.1 seconds after six hours of racing between Sebastian Buemi and Brendan Hartley. Hey, imagine that. Two former Red Bull Junior drivers. Um, at the line after six hours and 197 laps of racing. That is that is a very close margin when you consider the different configurations that both manufacturers went with on their cars. It was obviously a pretty good victory for Toyota, who had a bit of a scare with their other car of... Uh, Jose Maria Lopez, Mark Conway, Kabu Kabayashi. Lopez actually hit pretty damn hard uh, front and first at some point during the race and actually had to be taken to hospital because he had triggered the FIA medical light on the car, which if you sustain a hit with enough G-forces, that comes up and you have to go get checked up to make sure that you're okay. Miraculously enough, uh, Lopez drove the car back to the pits and they were able to at least uh, run the rest of the distance. Yes, they were still 38 laps off the overall leaders, but that was still a remarkable effort. Yeah, still a remarkable effort. You're, you know, you're down a driver, but you could still send your two other guys out, get, you know, important data in race conditions. So it wasn't a total loss. <laughs> right. Um, so that was a pretty gutsy effort from the number seven Toyota crew. This was also the first race of the new LMP2 formula. Um, it didn't quite turn out as expected in terms of diversity of chassis suppliers because there were only Orica 07s with the same engine and the same gearbox because it seems like Liget, Delara, and Riley are at a bit of a disadvantage. Uh, but somebody had to win the first race of the new LMP2 era, and it turns out it was Jackie Chan DC Racing. Yes, that Jackie <laughs> yes. Chan owns a race team. Yes, that team is actually pretty good. 
They had Oliver Jarvis on board alongside 18-year-old Thomas Laurent, who becomes the youngest ever winner of a World Endurance Championship event. He's just 18 years old. And it was Jarvis, Laurent, and Ho Pantung, the Dutch-Chinese veteran, taking the victory in the LMP2 category by finishing fourth overall over the number 13 Re Valiante Rebellion car of Matthias Betch. No, excuse me. That's the it's the 31 car. My bad. I'm doing my I'm doing my yeah, research it, it, on the it's, flag. It's, it's the it's the Prost and Senna car. Yes, it's it's the Nico Prost, Bruno Senna, Senna, and oh my God, third Julian Canal. Canal. Yeah. Yes. So they picked. So it was Jackie Chandisi racing from Valiante Rebellion from the third place car of TDS Racing with Matthew Vetsivier having a strong finish to the race in third with his co-drivers Emmanuel Collard and Francois Perotto. In GTE Pro, it was Ford Victory with the number 87 crew of Harry Tinkle, Andy Prio, and Luis Felipe Pipo Durrani finishing on the top step in what was a pretty competitive race uh, for the Pro Victory. But man, I don't know if anything's going to top that finish to that GTE Am class. Oh, it was I, something. Describe okay. it for me, because I missed the, the finish. Okay, so the finish of this, it comes down to the number 98 Aston Martin, driven by Pedro Lamy, and the number number 54 Spirit of Race Ferrari, driven by Miguel Molina. One former F1 driver and one former DTM driver. They are going at it for the win of this race, and all of a sudden, Matt Griffin in the clear rider racing Ferrari has snuck up behind him. There is about two and a half seconds covering these three cars as they go into the final lap of the race. Um, Lamy tries to... Uh, Lamy and uh, Molina are racing for the win. They go into Abbey Corner. Molina tries a pass. Um, they crash, and Matt Griffin goes through to take the win for Clearwater Racing. Oh Co-drivers co Wang Sunmok and Keita Sawa picking up the win on the final lap of the race it certainly was uh it was a finish yeah that that's like a finish you would see in like maybe an hour sprint series like the pirelli world challenge yeah it was uh it was it was incredible to say the least and a pretty and a pretty big big win for clearwater racing uh, to take that class victory. European Le Mans was also very fun as well. I was listening to that while I was doing yard work. I was so gutted for Rio Hirakawa at the end, trying to get to the end of the race and win on just these old shoddy tires. And he has Felipe Albuquerque just bearing on down him. And he almost knew it was kind of coming, but even still. But that was a great victory for United Autosport. Hey, we talked about them. They did win this race. They won two different classes, LMP2 and LMP3, in the European Le Mans, four hours of Silverstone. We also had European F3 this weekend at Silverstone. Yes, European F3 at Silverstone. Fortunately, I couldn't see Race 2 and Race 3, but I did see the opening race. I actually watched the opening race with you, and man, oh man... What a way to start the European Formula 3 season. Like, uh, there are some doubts creeping around the series over, you know, the lower grid size compared to last year. But, man, the people who you thought would impress did impress. Some not to the same degree as others, but, man, these kids look good. They did. 
Um, very fitting that Lando Norris picks up his first European F3 win on the day that the trailer for Star Wars The Last Jedi goes. <laughs> Lando, Calrissian, Norris picking up the first win of the season. Um, an incredible, incredible victory for him. Yeah, it was on a, uh, it was on a drying track, which led to... The start of the race had a bit of chaos where you know, Callum Elliott, the person who a lot of people, you know, pegged to be the favorite for the weekend as a whole, lost out where he was essentially lost control of his car and spun out of the race. Yeah, it was a, it was a tough start for a lot of front runners in that first race, and it eventually led to some chaos in the midfield. Yeah, some chaos in the midfield between probably, like... Uh, you got Maximilian Gunther, you got Jake Dennis, you got Joel Erickson, you got Joey Marston, you got you got Harrison Newey, you got uh, Zhang Hugh Mick Jude, Schumacher. Mick Schumacher, Pedro Piquet, and they're all, I think, what? Uh, they're all was, covered by a couple of seconds, really. Yeah, by like a kind of like fifth, fifth to ninth, like Marston to, to Piquet was, uh, was like five, seven seconds. Jeez, Louise. And they had good racing with this brand new aero package that they brought in for the Formula 3 cars. They have a bit more downforce than they used to, but it, it actually kind of made the racing better for them. Yeah, because uh, Formula 3 is just like Formula 1. It's it's in, it's an open specification in terms of a formula. It's not spec like Formula 2 or close to what IndyCar, IndyCar is sort of spec. Formula 3 is completely open, so there's open engine development, there's fairly open aero development. You need a wind, tun wind tunnel, actually they ban wind tunnels, so you can only use CFD, you can only use computers to develop aero now. So, so essentially, they wanted to add more downforce to the car to basically even out the, the ratio between power and downforce, because power was going up while downforce was staying fairly the same. Yeah, um, so we, we got to watch some of it. It was good racing. Uh, Joel Erickson taking the victory in race two um, over Callum Island and Jake Hughes in that second race. Um, after starting the weekend on, on kind of the wrong foot, I would bounce back to win the third and final race of the weekend um, at Silverstone at his home track. So we did have... Um, we did have a couple of hometown winners yeah, at Silverstone. two for three ain't bad. Two for three ain't bad. And we have three three different teams, three different drivers winning the three opening rounds. Erickson finishing second in that third race and Norris finishing third. So we had all three winning drivers on the podium for that last race of the weekend. And we have a pretty interesting championship scenario heading into the second round of Monza. Joel Erickson leads by 12 points over Callum Islet with 43 Atlando Norris has 42 points. He's 13 points adrift. Matt Scunther had um, had four, three straight top fives to open his season. He's at 39 points. Jake Dennis at 38 points. And, and Jake Hughes at 15 points, a distant sixth. Yeah, I, I don't want to say that points don't matter at this point, but the Formula 3 season is extremely, extremely long. So we got a long ways out. You could be down in 15th and still have a shot of winning this thing. Yep, and of course, if you win the championship, you do get enough points for your super license to qualify for an F1 drive. So this, so winning the title means a whole lot, especially for the rookies out there. 
Lando Norris that does include you and McShumacher and Joey Marson. Yeah. So, like, the rookie class themselves, they have their own rookie championship, which, which Norris leads over Schumacher. That is that is something. Of course, it's always crazy to think, man, there's there's Schumacher battling wheel-to-wheel with Nui. <laughs> and PK is in the mix somehow, and it's just, it's so strange. It's so strange. But it's it's, it's always satisfying, great. too. It's always great to see, you know, these drivers carry on, you know, the legacies of their predecessors. But it's always great to see new names in there, too. Especially Lando, Calrissian, Norris. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a good season. It's going to be a pretty, pretty awesome season for them. Um, Formula V8 also kicked off. Pietro Fittipaldi won both races for Lotus. Yeah, like I don't have much else to say about it. There were twelve cars on the grid. This is the fifth year. This is the fifth anniversary of maybe the greatest Formula Renault three point five class ever. The championship won by Robin Friends over Jewel Bianchi, Sam Bird, and Antonio Felix da Costa. Uh, five years later, it's um, it's fallen on some hard times. A lot yeah. of big teams have withdrawn. A lot of big programs have withdrawn their support of the series. It's rebranded. It's now part of the World Endurance Championship support bill. Um, it's like, great for Fittipaldi, but man, I, I just feel so bad that it kind of feels like if Fittipaldi wins this championship, it's going to be for naught. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's going to be for naught. Like, it, it feels more like a feeder series to the WEC than to Formula One at this point. And I think I saw one person on Twitter, like, jokingly refer to the series as Formula Fittipaldi because that's what the season essentially feels it's going to be but i would i would call it like the the ta like it's auto gp2 at this point yeah auto gp2 i'd I'd jokingly like for the wrestling fans out there call it the tna to what formula reno 3.5 was wcw like they they clearly lost the sunday morning wars they they did and certainly having Red Bull drop their support of the program, having Renault themselves drop support, it didn't help. A lot of the top young drivers are now just going to European Formula 3 and GP3 and G- and Formula 2 now. Yeah, and like uh, a lot of or, these... Or they're, or they're switching over to sports cars or the road to Indy, which well, is actually a smarter idea. There's some good news. Like a lot of the teams in Formula 3, in Formula 3 and G and GP3, they're considering expanding, becoming, well, more, I wouldn't say multi-discipline, but multi-single-seater championship. Like, high-tech yeah, like high tech are considering, high-tech either by next year or two years down the road, considering adding a Formula 2 program to their outfit. Which would, which would be very good. That's a, that's a very strong team with a lot of good people working for them. Um, great formula three program would love to see them attempt formula two yeah like a lot of people worrying about grid sizes i i'd say just wait a second because i think while the things shake up and we see where the championship stands a lot of the teams that participate in only one championship are going to start participating in more than one which will quickly quickly fill out these grids right um we do have some less fun news from the single-seater world that happened this weekend. This was at the British Formula 4 Championship at Donington Park, yeah. which was part of the British Touring Car Support event. There was a very, very bad crash in the third race of that weekend involving Patrick Pasma of Carlin Racing and Billy Monger of JHR Developments. Uh, Pasma 
uh, it was a pretty frightening incident where Monger had to be extracted from the car after a lengthy period of work. Yeah, people uh, there, that's estimated it was about two hours. Jeez Louise. Yeah. Um, so he was taken out of his car. He suffered some leg injuries. Um, per an official statement from the British Formula 4 Championship on behalf of F4, the Toka Championship and Donington Park Circuit, Monger was extracted from the car after suffering leg injuries. To what extent, we do not know, um, and we'll probably know in a couple in days and weeks to come. Um, he is at Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham for further evaluation. Patrick Pasma, the other driver involved in the incident, was also extracted from his car was taken away fully conscious to the onsite medical center and was also taken to Queens Medical Center at Nottingham for further examination. Um, so I think I think on behalf of all of us, we could say that get well, Billy. Um, Billy's like a number of young drivers uh, just trying to get their foot in the door in professional motorsport. And certainly an incident like this can really have long-term ramifications, not just professionally, but also for just life in general. So we're hoping that Billy makes a good comeback from this. Yeah, it's uh, sad to see, especially someone his age. He's, what, only 17 years old. 17 years old. And just, yeah, it was it was not a good scene. Yeah, that's... It, I rarely have ever seen an incident like that where I think the closest I could describe it to was uh, the Rolex 24 from a few years ago where... Uh, where Mamo, where oh. Mamo Gidley was in a similar oh, incident goodness. in Daytona prototypes, where a car had spun off and then entered, re-entered the track and was extremely slow, but there was a lot of, there was like just either miscommunication. I I know in, in Billy's incident, he literally couldn't see the cars because there was like a train of cars ahead of him, so he couldn't see the stopped car until it was too late. Right, and another incident that I heard uh, comparisons to was unfortunately the one that took the life of Ricardo Paletti in the 1982 Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, very similar circumstances there. We're certainly hoping that things turn out for the best for Billy. Please get well soon, dude. Yes. Um, we have some racing to look forward to next weekend. Uh, we have IndyCar at Barber Motorsports Park. I'm sadly not going to be there in person, barring an absolute miracle, but I'm looking forward to what should be another awesome race at the circuit and with all the support events that come with it, including IMSA prototype challenge and the 400th race of the Indy lights championship. Oh, the 400th race of the Indy lights championship, the lights finally head to a road course this season. I mean, a you know, a proper road course, not a street circuit. So I want to see how well Colton Herta does because man, oh man, yeah. I, like, for some reason, I really, this season, I'm really excited for the, the undercard of, you know, Formula One and IndyCar. Like, IndyCar itself is really exciting, but... You're not just saying that because Colton Herta is driving for the dudes <laughs> that run your favorite baseball team, right? No, I'm not saying that because he's... A... I'm not saying it either because Colton Herta is a genuinely exciting talent. Yeah, he's he a genuinely... that in St. Petersburg. He's a, he's a genuinely exciting talent in a field of also exciting talents. <laughs> Yeah, he's not the only uh, he's not the only next generation driver that's going to be at Barber Motorspark because we got news today that Buddy Lazier's son is going to run his very first race in U.S. Formula 2000 this weekend. Yes, yes. What uh? Oh God, uh, Flynn Lazier. 
Yes, Flynn Wazir is going to run for Newman Wax Racing in his very first race in the U.S. Formula 2000 Championship. That's also happening in Barber. All three Road to Indy Championships are going to be at Barber Motorsports Park. If you are at there, you should you should definitely go to Barber Motorsports Park. I've been there a couple of years. It's a beautiful, beautiful circuit, and the racing there is just fantastic. Probably more fantastic than it has any right to be. Definitely stop by the museum. Uh, pay a visit by the John Surtees part of the museum wing. That would be awesome. Um, we also have the opening round of the Super Formula Championship this coming weekend oh. at Suzuka Circuit. We got the best rookie class ever. Pierre Gasly, Felix Rosenquist. We got Jan Mardenborough, Kenzie Amashta, Nick Cassidy. And they've all got to go through guys like Andre Lauder and Kaz Nakajima. Man, oh man, if there, if, if there's any time to be a single-seater fan, it is now. <laughs> it is now. Yeah. Um, go brew yourself a big cup of cup of coffee or uh just stay up late or wake up or have or just destroy your sleep schedule to check out this super formula race it's gonna be a good time it's at suzuka you're gonna watch it you're gonna enjoy it you're gonna have a good time um is there anything else coming up this weekend that we should know about uh, by any chance we got just... moto gp at coda yeah, that's gonna be that's... that's gonna be broken down on bike live on the motorsport 101 network bike live well yeah i'm I'm pretty sure it's gonna involve some mark marquez quotes because mark marquez still undefeated on american uh, honorary, soil. <laughs> honorary american mark marquez because we still haven't found a nikki hayden successor yet yep uh, <sighs> is there anything else to watch this weekend oh Aussie V8 Supercars. They're at Philip. They're at Philip Island this weekend. Yeah, boy. Besides that, I think we have everything covered. If you're a NASCAR fan, it's obviously the spring race in Bristol this weekend. So if you have some free time, you can always peek in and watch that. Yeah, Bristol now better, probably better known as a as a makeshift football stadium than as a racing <laughs> venue. Sadly. Uh, just, just how much has doggone NASCAR's popularity just plummeted? That makes me feel sad. I remember when Bristol had like years long waiting lists for tickets. Yeah. And they would sell out. I still remember when they completely redid one of the corners because they used to have, you know, uh, you know, the office building on the track. Like I still, like they showed a highlight from, from the from the 97 spring race and the track looks completely different 20 years on it does it does oh my goodness yeah um i believe that is a wrap for our 82nd episode of motorsport 101 how did we get this far without everything just burning down and crumbling to our feet right before us well i have one teensy bit of news uh, oh yes, the FIA until the 2020 like they extended their contract with the ACO to run the World Endurance con to run the World Endurance Championship until 2020. So yes, again, so there will still be a top level World Championship of sports car endurance racing for at least two for at least a couple more years. Yeah, like it. It felt like uh, John Top, president of the FIA, he felt very. He didn't feel like this was a good thing or a bad thing. It felt like it was just a thing where he's like, when things go well, it's it's only rational to move forward and continue and making things better. But he wasn't too positive about the ACO continuing to run the championship, especially when it happened with uh, LMP2 and 
you know, considering that the ACO are not very open to North American participation in terms of North, North American cars, they would love teams to come over and yeah. buy LMP2 chassis. Yeah, they they want the DPI teams. They just don't want their cars with them. And it's it's a it's a potentially volatile situation. Hopefully, it will sort itself out because. I do like the idea of having a world endurance sports car racing championship, and I, I want to see them do well. Um, it's just some of the decisions they've been making kind of have people understandably on edge and looking towards IMSA, European Le Mans series, 24H, VLN, Super GT, what have you for as alternatives because it seems like they've got a better understanding of what's going on at the moment. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, like, just... To be brief, I, I see like the ACO and the World Endurance Championship to be like the worst possible situation of what IMS and IndyCar could be because IndyCar they really, really worked hard to provide great racing and make sure that the series is you know e- extremely entertaining outside of the premier race that the IMS kind of has a conflict of interest of being the headline race of the series. On the other hand, the ACO, they've really focused so much on Le Mans that the World Endurance Championship seems a bit of an afterthought. Which is a shame because there's a lot of historic events on the calendar in the World Endurance Championship that are not the 24 hours of Le Mans. There's a lot of good races and a lot of great stories to be had in those races, but for the most part, they just cannot sustain that base apart from, apart from like maybe the first couple of rounds before Le Mans, and then it just tapers off after Le Mans. It's, it's strange and it's not ideal, but hopefully, hopefully things will get better in the years to come. And we do have breaking news from the world of (gasps) Formula One. Oh, we do. Quote, quote. Um, I'm gonna let you guess who it is, but here's the quote. I feel like is I, it is it is it is it is it Gator Vandergarde? No, it is not. You're close. You're you're really close. You're within the same borders. Mm, is it Yan Lammers? No, no. I'll read the quote. I feel like I need to clarify my remarks that were made after this weekend's qualifying session. Being a passionate. <laughs> Being a passionate racer, I was very disappointed with my last stint and gave an emotional reaction that was taken out of context. By no means did I mean to insult the Brazilian people who I greatly respect and are always very nice to me when I visit the country. My only One of the highlights of my career was last year's Brazilian Grand Prix, and it was extra special to do this in, to do this in the country that brought us legendary drivers such as Ayrton Senna, Emerson Fittipaldi, and Nelson Piquet. I would so like to apologize. Yes, I'd like Matt's to apologize to any Brazilian that I've, I that that feel offended, and I look forward to racing in your country again. Uh, it's it's not the best apology, um, but it's it it's at least something, and hopefully Matt's could learn from this experience and be better. Yes. He's 19 years old. He's still got a lot of growing up to do. Hell, I had a lot of growing up to do when I was 19 years old. I wasn't happy about some of the things that I said when I was 19 years old. I relate to Matt Verstappen. I don't like some of the things that he said or the way that he's acted, but I I, I understand where he's coming from. Yeah, Doesn't like, mean I have to like it. This is, this is a good step forward for him. Hopefully he learns from the situation and doesn't do it again. That's the most important part. 
Because if we do, because if he does, ooh, buddy, ooh, buddy, mm, man, then he's gonna be in trouble. Man, like <laughs> Red Bull is gonna be in trouble. I can, I can see people like just, just destroying Red Bull in the streets of Sao Paulo. Just tipping over those Red Bull Mini Coopers that they used to build <laughs> to promote the drink. Just, oh, just, just, just pouring Red Bull in the streets. Just dumping it right into the into the Atlantic Ocean, <laughs> right into the Amazon. It's like uh, just dump it right into the Amazon River, and you have Red Bull powered piranhas. Oh dear, that God. is terrifying. Was... Dear Lord, what have we done? It's like right. Let's <laughs> let's. Yeah, like I'm, I'm just imagining Red Bull gives people wings, but what does it do to piranhas? I think it's I think it's about time we call it <laughs> yes. a night before yes. we start um, giving people ideas on horrifying, horrifying uh, mutations that Mother Nature would not approve of, and unsolicited sequels to Sharknado. <laughs> right. So again, um, for those of you who want to check us out on multiple social media platforms, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, subscribe to us on iTunes, listen to us uh, on the Motorsport 101 podcast and on Bike Live. Our YouTube channel is youtube.com slash motorsport101, facebook.com slash motorsport101, twitter.com at motorsport underscore 101. And for those wishing to support us financially, we have a patron set up at patreon.com slash motorsport 101 if you wish to follow the cast of motorsport 101 individually we are at harrison 101 for the absent andre at brian eric king with two k's for king and myself i'm rj o'connell um thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast we do hope to catch you again next time and until then for ryan eric king for everyone i'm rj o'connell and we'll See you on the next episode. Later, y'all. Bye. We don't want a terrible sequel to Sharknado with Red Bull powered piranhas. No, we don't. <laughs>